Good afternoon uh, and welcome to the Southeast Anchor Library. Okay. Uh, my name is Reginald Harris, and I'd like to welcome you to the uh, Pratt. Um, and it is my very great pleasure to introduce Connie Willis tonight. Uh, it's a little bit unexpectedly. Um, um, as I just said to her, this is a thrill. Um, it's it's still amazing, even though I work for the library system, it's still sometimes amazing to see authors in the flesh, people that you've, whose works you've read, whose books you just sort of loved and lived in and sort of been taken to the worlds that they've created. And so this is a real pleasure for me um, and for all of you as well. Um, and we'd also like to thank her and also uh, the folks at Balticon for bringing her for this weekend's uh, uh, conference. Um, Ms. Willis has won uh, more Nebula Awards than any other author, um, and also um, nine, is it nine Hugos? Wow, that's, that's a fantastic, uh, which are the Academy Awards, both, that's sort of like winning both the Oscar and the Tony, for, for as far as science fiction goes, um, and she is truly one of the acclaimed authors, and uh, some of us, uh, those of us who read her, have particular favorites. But we're not going to be playing too many favorites tonight. Um, good. Let me just wait just a second. And it's a great pleasure. She just came in uh, direct from the airport and other worlds. Ladies and gentlemen, a great pleasure, Connie Willis. Hello. I blew in, and uh, I was just telling Dan, who drove me here, that... Um, that I am a firm, I asked him if anything god awful had happened in the world because when I, while I was on the plane, because it's my theory that I hold the world together by watching MSNBC <laughs> and that if I stop for even a moment, it will all fall apart. And as I was telling him the story at the baggage claim, my husband called and said, Hi, honey, we're safe. Not a good beginning. <laughs> And luckily, he was the first person to call me to tell me that there had been a level five tornado that blew through our town today. And then all the way over here, we fielded calls from people going, are you okay? Thinking that I was home. And I, thank God, the first call was from my husband, or I would be very worried. So anyway, my husband's fine. The dog is fine. We're good. Um, and I don't know about anybody else because I haven't had a chance to check NB MSNBC, so so I better I will do it immediately. So, but I saw on the way over here that there was an Obama 08 sign, so I assume everything's still on track, and I'm <laughs> okay, good. Um, don't want anything to fall apart over the weekend, you know. Um, so I'm glad to be here, delighted to be here. I love Baltimore. Baltimore is one of my daughter's favorite cities. Um, she first fell in love with it when she was at uh, GW getting a master's in forensic science and Baltimore's the home of homicide and so she she uh, took me on the homicide tour the first time we were here and bought genuine homicide crime scene tape I believe and as well as the t-shirt and the hat and the tote bag and the everything else so so um, and then she took me on a rest the tour of the rest of the city but that's how she sees Baltimore the homicide sites and the rest of the city so um, Homicide the show, yes. Not, not just general homicides, yes. Homicide the show. And Homicide the book, which is, if you're unaware, the book is, is even better than the show, if that's possible. The show was a classic and the book was brilliant. So anyway, um, I, anyway I'm delighted to be here, a little undone by um, all these things that have been going on. And 
by the fact that I was in the row ahead of the crying baby row. And, uh, and unfortunately, the crying baby was not as much a problem as the woman sitting next to me who could not deal with the crying baby. <laughs> Always more of a problem. I almost had to hit her. It was bad. Uh, and we had nonstop turbulence, so we had the bathroom crisis problem where we were never allowed out of our seats to go to the bathroom the entire trip. So it's just been a good day. And I'm, now it's picking up enormously since I got here. So I'm delighted to be here. And I wanted to talk for a few minutes about books and how much I love books. And then, um, and then I'll be happy to answer any questions that you have for me. So um, I do adore books. And I am one of the people who is a book lover who also is a movie lover and a, an Internet lover. And I am addicted to the political sites on line and stay up till way too late at night reading people's blogs. It's very depressing. Um, and, uh, and all forms of written and non-written entertainment, um, of which I think books are the, the best, the absolute best. And um, I have loved books ever since I was three. I believe my introduction to high literature was Katie the Kitten, a golden book, which I could not read because um, I was three years old. But I memorized it and then annoyed everyone because I would make them read it to me and then I would correct them when they made mistakes. And at one point, my grandfather threw it across the window and said, go read your own goddamn book. And so, it, so then I learned to read. And then, um, and then when I was eight, I got my library card. You could not get a library card till you were eight. These were dark and benighted times. And, um, and Rita Mae Brown says, when I got my library card, that's when my life began. And I feel exactly that way. Um, I got my library card, and my grandmother had just taken me to see a reissue of uh, Wizard of Oz at the theater. And so I asked if they had the Wizard of Oz. And the librarian, I will never forget this, said, they're over here, which made no sense to me. And then took me to a place where there was an entire shelf of Wizard of Oz books, which till that moment I had not known existed. And I took, I checked out three, and then three more. You were only allowed to check out three books. That was dark and benighted times. And then I checked out all the other Oz books, and all the Maida's Little Shop books, and all the Nancy Drew books, and all the Elsie Dinsmore books, possibly the worst books ever written. But I loved them because I was a kid and didn't know any better. And all the Anne of Green Gables books, and all the Beanie Malone books, and all the Betsy Tasty Tibb books, and the wonderful Flight to the Mushroom Planet and A Little Princess, and A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, and Miracle on 34th Street. And then when I was in sixth grade, I read Little Women, and I knew that I wanted to become a writer. Well, not just a writer. I wanted to become Joe March. And I wanted to sit in a garret and eat uh, russet apples and scribble and get ink all over my fingers. I have ink all over my hand today, so I'm following in her fine tradition. Um, I did not know what a garret was, and... um, I was very disappointed to discover that russet apples are really ratty, mealy little leftover apples from last fall. But, um, but I still decided that I wanted to become a writer. And then when I was 13, I read Have Space, It Will Travel, and it was all over. And I fell completely in love with science fiction and have been madly in love with it ever since, and in love with books. I think that I love them even more now than I did when I was a kid. Um, although I think children have a, 
they, they understand how you're supposed to read books. You're supposed to swallow them whole. You are supposed to get totally absorbed in them, lose yourself completely in them, not come to dinner because you are so lost in the world of the book. And I love the stories about the kids who go to the Harry Potter uh, you know, midnight parties when the book comes out, who purchase the book and then plunk right down in front of the cashier, creating a huge traffic jam, and read the book right on the spot. Kids know how to read books. You know, adults adults tend to be try to be more disciplined, which I think is a huge mistake. You, if you have not spent an afternoon reading, you know, a book in a long time and just thoroughly indulging yourself, you should definitely do it. I know I'm preaching to the choir here because you're all at a library, but. Um, my favorite thing on earth is to open a new book or to discover or even reread an old author, uh, an old favorite. Um, I love Agatha Christie's Mysteries and Dorothy Sayers, P.G. Woodhouse, Jerome K. Jerome's Three Men in a Boat, Sigrid Unset's Kristen Lovren's Daughter, Daphne du Maurier, Ursula Curtis, Damon Runyon, Philip K. Dick, Mary Stewart, C.S. Lewis, Isaac Asimov, James M. Kane, Thornton Wilder, and just, oh gosh, too many to name. Uh, Jorge Luis Borges says, heaven is a kind of library, which I completely agree with. I, if it is not a kind of library, I am not going. <laughs> and I have asked my husband in case there is some sort of delay en route that he is to throw a couple of things into the coffin for me to read until I get there. So... Um, because I think I don't just, I think I qualify not just as a reader, but also an addict. Um, I can prove this because, hi, I'm Connie Willis, and I read too many books. Um, I, uh, <laughs> and I, uh, when I was in high school, I was reading Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier for the very first time, which, how many of you have read Rebecca cannot put it down, can you? I know, it's so exciting. And I was to the really exciting part. I won't say anything for those of you who haven't read Rebecca, but it was really the exciting part. And I was, at, I was reading it at a forensics meet and, um, and then in the car on the way home. And then my teacher dropped me off at home, and I saw that everybody had gone across the street to my grandmother's house. But I did not go because I had to find out what happened to Max to Winter and the heroine of Rebecca. And so... Um, I just went upstairs and read the entire rest of the book, and it was great. And then I went across the street where my parents had called the police <laughs> because they, uh, I had not come home. And my teacher had, they had called my teacher, and she had said, yes, she had dropped me off. And it had been actually hours and hours and hours that I had been reading the book. Um, I also got married because of my addiction. Um, I got engaged in college, and then my husband went to teach in Connecticut, and I got very cold feet and decided that I would go out and see him for spring break and break up with him. Why I thought that was a good idea, I don't know, but um, girls think that. So I, um, but I had not flown a lot, and flying on a plane was a very big deal, so I knew I had to have something long to read from Colorado. So I went to the library and bought or went to the uh, bookstore and bought uh, these pink paperbacks. They had sort of pink covers with odd fantasy kind of creatures on them. I knew nothing about the author. I knew nothing about the books. Uh, there were three of them. And I started reading Lord of the Rings. And by the time I got off the plane in Connecticut, <laughs> I said to my fiancé, oh, my God, oh, my God, 
Frodo and Sam are in so much trouble. You would not believe it. The, see, the, re, the ring wraiths are after them, and I don't know where Gandalf is. And I, it's just... And, and I completely forgot to break up with him because I was busy reading this book. And so I've been married to him for 39, 40 years, 40 years this year. So, so see, books can change your life sometimes. Um, I think that books are, what I want to talk about is that I, I think books are not just fun, but they're vitally important. And uh, when I was growing up, nobody in my family read books at all. And um, I was considered a real odd person and constantly told to get my nose out of that book and go out and get some fresh air. And uh, even as an adult, I run into people, and uh, lots of people, and, and even writers sometimes, who wonder if books aren't somehow a, a bad substitute for living real life and that you should be out there experiencing things instead of reading. And to this I say poppycock and balderdash and nonsense. Um, I think books are fabulous and one of the great joys of life, one of the great pleasures. They are completely lovely. Uh, even if they weren't important, they would be more than worth reading. Um, it's like defending books is like defending like chocolate or Harrison Ford or <laughs> lilacs. I don't know. Has anybody seen the new movie? Isn't it tonight? Why are you here? Why are you not at Indiana Jones and the something of the Crystal Skull? What is it? Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. But uh, it, uh, anyway, it, books are a, an unmitigated pleasure. Are you leaving to go see Indiana Jones? Tell me how it is. Tell me how good it is. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Oh, good. Excellent. All right. Well, the, uh, the, I, have read, I read the Times Review today, which was snotty, and, uh, as I expected. And then the person at the end said, I never did like any of the Indiana Jones movies. And I'm like, well, then why are you re- reviewing this movie in the first place? Um, but anyway, they are, books are just a pure pleasure, and they're good for you, you know, and they're, and they're cheap. They cost almost nothing. They aren't a vice. They're, they don't do anything bad to your body. They don't rot your teeth like methamphetamines or something. Um, you can do them. They're legal. Uh, it's something you can do any place, any time, in public, in private. The guy across the aisle from me was reading the new um, Shara. I can't remember the fr- guy's first name. It's a, it's a w- new World War II, the Rising Tide World War II novel. He said it was excellent. We had a little discussion about World War II historical novels. Um, it's just, they're a pure, unmitigated pleasure that can be shared with others or that you can do all by yourself. Um, I think certain people know this and somehow resent it uh, because it is, can, is such a private pleasure. And, um, and if you are lost in a book, that can be somehow threatening to people. I have always felt that um, one of the reasons that certain groups of people really resented and were afraid of the Harry Potter uh, books was because just the sheer engrossed <laughs> nature of the experience that kids were obviously so lost in them and so in love with them and I think that was threatening to some people H.O. Um, Mencken says that one of the who's a Baltimore boy and one of my heroes um, said that 
one of the things wrong with America is that we are always beset by the haunting fear that someone somewhere may actually be happy. <laughs> and we do our best to see that this doesn't happen. Um, when I first got my library card, I, took, I checked out those three Wizard of Oz books and took them home and read them all that night and then made my grandmother take me back the very next morning and read them uh, and get three more. And as an adult, I have tried to be more disciplined, but like about five years ago, I discovered E.F. Benson's Map and Lucia books. Has anybody read Map and Lucia? Oh, they are so hilarious. They're so wonderful, and they are indescribable. I don't know how you would describe them. They're sort of like, okay, two women in a small British country town in the 1930s vying for social supremacy, but written as if these were the Napoleonic Wars, <laughs> which in many ways they are. Um, there are six Map and Lucia books, and when I, I don't know how I'd missed them up to this point, but when I discovered them and read the first one, I thought, all right, I am not going to make the same mistake here. I'm not going to read right through them. I'm just going to pace myself. I'm going to read one every two years so that I can spread this out over a long time, you know. Not going to do what I did with P.G. Woodhouse. Not going to do what I did with F. Scott Fitzgerald. Not going to get to the point where there aren't any more to read. Sat down, read right through them. All six of them, just straight through. Yes. Okay, MAP, M-A-P-P, and Lucia, L-U-C-I-A. And it's E.F. Benson. And he's written a ton of other stuff. So I was actually okay because once I finished all the MAP and Lucias, I figured out that there were these other books. And now I'm reading all of those. So... But I think this is uh, one of the pleasures that you should give yourself. If you have not, really, I'm serious. This is, what I'm, this is my order to you guys. You should read. And I know you read all the time. And I know you read in, at night. And then you read and make it part of your lives, obviously. But you should just take a day off and totally indulge yourself. Go to Starbucks and read for the afternoon. They actually let you read in Starbucks. Go to the library and read for the afternoon. Go outside and climb a tree and read for the afternoon. It is one of the great joys of life. But books also have the virtue of being very, very good for you, and um, which I think makes them perfect as a vice. And I, I feel about books the way I feel about when I found out that red wine and dark chocolate were actually good for you. Those were good days to discover that. And so, so um, next I'm hoping that that Woody Allen thing in Sleeper comes true and mashed potatoes and gravy and hot fudge sundaes are also good for you. Uh, then the world will be truly perfect. Uh, so I'm going to give you some reasons why books are good for you so that the next time somebody tells you to get your nose out of a book and go out and experience real life or get some fresh air, you will know what to say to them. So the f first of all, I think they enrich our lives immeasurably. They give us hundreds of experiences and let us live hundreds of lives that we could never live on our own. Some of those lives are lives that are fabulous and exciting, and others are lives that we could hardly bear to experience. But we need badly to know about them. Books let us understand the Holocaust and Watergate, medieval Norway, ancient Egypt, and go to amazing places, to Venice, to Mars, to Illyria, to Hill House, to the old curiosity shop, a London where the dead live, a past where the South won the Civil War, and a dark future where androids dream of electric sheep. 
They can even take us to the seven circles of hell, to Moon River and the great gray-green greasy Limpopo River and the River Styx. Second reason, we get to meet the most amazing people and the most romantic men. Lord Peter Whimsey, Max de Winter, Will from About a Boy, and Mr. Rochester, and Mr. Darcy from Pride and Prejudice, and Mr. Darcy from Bridget Jones's Diary, and Aragorn, and Philip Marlowe, and Brian E's secret lover in Mary Stewart's Touch Not the Cat. He, oh, he qualifies as cutest man ever in literature. Literature is full of amazing women, too. Titania and Cinderella, and she who must be obeyed. The one in the H. Ryder Haggard novel and the one in the Rumple of the Bailey short stories. Map and Lucia, Scheherazade, Anna Karenina, Emma Bovary, Auntie Mame. We get to meet people who we would never otherwise have come in contact with. Pirates and Chinese peasants and Satchel Paige and Fred Astaire and Captain Ahab and the Tin Woodman and the Bicentennial Man and the Red Queen and the Ugly Duckling and the Tuck family who live forever. Oedipus and Pip and the Great Gatsby and the Man Who Was Thursday. People who are nothing like us and people who are more like us than we ever imagined, some of them at the same time. Two of my favorites that I have met through literature, Shakespeare and Gypsy Rose Lee. Now, you all know about Shakespeare, I'm sure, and the only thing I have to say about Shakespeare is I hate him. I hate him. It is so not fair. It is not fair. You know, in Sleeping Beauty, where, like, you know, all the fairies come, and they all give her gifts, and then the mean fairy comes, and she makes her prick her finger on a spindle and she has to sleep for 100 years. Okay, this clearly didn't happen with Shakespeare. All of the fairies and some extras came to his christening. (laughs) And you look at Shakespeare. I loved him when I was 17. Now I just, I look at him in awe and astonishment. He not only can plot and do great characters and do fabulous scenes and do amazing irony and fabulous philosophical ideas and cover, do comedy and farce and high comedy and tragedy and bitter sort of mixed up tragic comedy and history and everything. He can, there is nothing he cannot do. He was even right about Richard III, which for a while it looked like he was wrong when Josephine Tay wrote Daughter of Time, but now it's turned out they found the bodies, so he really was right. I knew all along that Richard III was a bad person. And he just, it's not fair. Most writers either have a tremendous style, like at F- Scott Fitzgerald, but can really only write about one subject, Zelda. Um, or they have a marvelous gift for plotting, but not much depth to their characters. Or they have, you know, something, some combination. He's got everything, plus he invented the entire English language. <laughs> and every year on Shakespeare's birthday... In his honor, the English Honor Society that I work with, we read a list of clichés, which were all invented by Shakespeare, all of them. And everyone is always, they do pretty good until they get down to Westward Ho. And that one just completely blows them away because it is not from some Western, it is from Twelfth Night. 
and it is astonishing. And then we do a list of all the titles of books that have come from Shakespeare. And then we do a list of all the insults that have come from Shakespeare. And then we do a list of all the literary allusions in other works that have come from Shakespeare. And then we all get really depressed and go home. <laughs> so that's all I have to say about Shakespeare. If you haven't experienced him lately, you need to read him, or better yet, see him. I, I really recommend, uh, especially The Twelfth Night, that was done by um, uh, the BBC, it was starring Imogene Stubbs and Ben Kingsley. It is brilliant beyond imagining. It's the best, I think it's the best Twelfth Night that's ever been done. Also the um, uh, Ian McKellen, um, Richard III, which is done as the rise of the Nazi regime, which is perfect, absolutely perfect. And um, and dozens of others. There, I mean, pick one. There's just uh, there are wonderful things out about his play, including Ten Things I Hate About You," which is Taming of the Shrew, and "Get Over It," which is uh, "Midsummer Night's Dream," done for teeny boppers. And they're both very clever and good. So, okay, enough about Shakespeare. Now I'll tell you about Gypsy Rose Lee, who you might not know very much about. Um, she's one of my heroes because she um, made a career out of and a life out of nothing absolutely nothing. She had no education. She was hauled from Fleabag Hotel to Fleabag Hotel by her lunatic stage mother. She had a younger sister who was much prettier and more talented than she was. She, the only education she had was from books, but books were her complete and utter salvation. She read constantly. And as a result, when her 13-year-old sister ran off and got married to get away from the hideous stage mother, and uh, Gypsy was left with her mother, who really was the mother from hell, um, and they sank because Gypsy had not particularly good looks and no talent, all the way to the bottom of burlesque in a day when vaudeville was already dying. and. Really, you can write the ending that probably would have happened to anybody else, you know? A, lot of, a series of unhappy love affairs and drug addiction and something bad, right? Right. And sinking from level to level till there's nothing left at all. Instead, Gypsy, because she had read books her entire life, within two years of being in, uh, in burlesque, and not having a particularly well-endowed figure, had completely transformed burlesque into a high art form, a very funny art form, one for which H.L. Mencken had to invent a brand new word, exodesiast, for an artist who removes her clothes for a living. And she did incredibly witty things. She would come out arrayed in a sort of a bathing suit kind of thing made of leaves, and she would stand there and kind of pose a little. She hardly ever took anything off, you know. And stand there and pose for a while. And then she would go, oh, no, fall. <laughs> and then begin to shed strategically placed leaves. Um, she, was, she did all her own publicity. And there's a wonderful Life magazine spread where she was going to go to Vegas to perform. And they show her in a very stylish suit and hat, standing out on the tarmac, you know, in front of the plane. You can see the propeller plane and everything. And she's carrying one of those little um, um, makeup cases, you know, that from the 50s. The, 
and little tiny thing, and it says Gypsy Rose Lee and her trunks for a six-month stay in Las Vegas. <laughs> and she was responsible for all of that. She reinvented striptease. She reinvented. Um, she invented her own life, and she, within two years, was starring in the Folie Bergère and then going on to Hollywood and to become a writer herself. If you have never read Gypsy, her autobiography, it is fabulous. You are probably familiar with the Broadway play, but it just scratches the surface. There's really, it's a wonderful book. She also wrote two murder mysteries. One was um, The G-String Murders, and one, the other was uh, Mother Finds a Body. I was surprised, given the situation, that it wasn't mother is a body. But, <laughs> but anyway, I, she was an amazing person, and for her books were the pathway to a life that you, is hardly imaginable. You know, and she was. I really admire people that have nothing, and and books can transform them. And I got to meet her and really know her through books. Otherwise, I would never have have discovered her or known anybody like her at all. Okay, number three, books can transform our lives. Obviously, Gypsy is a very good example of that. Malcolm X was a young punk when he was sent to prison and given access to the prison library, the first library he had ever had access to. And he said, it completely changed my life, which obviously it did. I can, you probably have dozens and dozens of examples of famous people who, who trace all of their beginnings back to the public library. Um, the one I am most familiar with is my own life. Um, when I was 12, my eighth grade teacher read Rumor Gardens, an episode of Sparrows, to us in class. Um, and it's about an orphaned girl who um, plants a garden in the bombed out rubble of a, of a London church after World War II. And uh, I knew nothing about World War II or any of those things when I read it. I also did not know, and just I read it just the other day, and was stunned to discover that, in fact, it is a modern update of The Secret Garden by Frances Hodgson Burnett, which I had not caught the first time around at all, but was very impressed with that, and delighted to think that um, Frances Hodgson Burnett, who I've always loved, inspired her, who then inspired me, <laughs> you know, and it's, a, it's part of a wonderful um, paying it forward of one writer to another. Um, my, my eighth grade teacher read this book, I think just because she liked it, and I, I totally approve of that. If any of you are in teaching positions, do not read what is recommended, do not read what you think you should, do not read what what you think would be good for the kids, read what you love, and the kids pick up on that very much, I think. It's, reading is a very personal thing, but I also think your personal love of reading comes through. We couldn't wait for her to get to uh, that book every day, and it's really not a children's book at, at all. I mean, it's, it's really an adult book. Um, years later, I went to London, uh, accompanied, of course I went to London because, you know, writers and readers go to London because that's, they've been brought up and all of that. And I did not have the feeling of going to a foreign country at all because I recognized everything. This was Dickens and this was Agatha Christie and over here was Dorothy Sayers. And one of the funniest things I ever saw happen was I was on a walking tour in Oxford and um, people would say, okay, this is where T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia got expelled, you know, and everyone would go, yeah, yeah, yeah. These were all Americans, you know, they're morons. 
And then, and then they'd go, and this is where Einstein gave his famous e equals mc squared. And then they said, and this is the bridge of size where Lord Peter Whimsey proposed to Harriet Vane, and everyone got out their cameras and began wildly <laughs> snapping pictures. And I was like, that didn't really happen, I don't think. But, but of course, it did really happen. It really happened for all those people. It was a real event, and I think books provide a real event. Anyway, so I went to London, and I had with me a wonderful book called London by H.V. Morton, uh, written just after the war, a terrific book about London. And in it, he talked about the Firewatch of St. Paul's, which during the war was a group of uh, church staff and volunteers who slept down in the crypt during the day and then at night uh, and then at night went up on the roofs to put out the incendiary bombs that Hitler was sending over on a nightly basis, including on the 29th of December when 29 incendiaries landed on the dome, uh, including one which stuck halfway up the dome at a place where nobody could get to it at which point the very Reverend Dean Matthews said, evacuated the church and said, all right, let us pray. They prayed, it fell off, and they ran over and put it out with stirrup pumps and, and sandbags, which is I, my idea of a good religion, you know. You pray, but then you put it out with the stirrup pump yourself also. Uh, and they saved St. Paul's, and uh, it's an amazing thing. When I went to St. Paul's because of H.V. Morton telling me to go to St. Paul's and because I remembered this book that that Rumor Garden had written. Um, I went up into the, you can go up into the dome and then outside, on, there's a gallery outside. And, excuse me, I went out there and I was thinking of, I don't know, some sort of Victorian rooftops, you know, Mary Poppins kind of thing, you know, chimney pots and chimney sweeps and things, I don't know. That was a book I read when I was a child also. Um, and it was just hideous. It was absolutely the most hideous thing I'd ever seen. It was all these cement block buildings and car parks, and oh, it was just really ugly. And I thought, well, this sucks. This is not what I wanted. And then about two minutes later, I thought, oh, my God, this all burned down. This all burned down. And it all burned down right up to the door of St. Paul's on all four sides. And in fact, people, a lot of people don't know this. They talk about Dresden. We know about Dresden, of course, the horrible firestorm, which takes on a life of its own and swallowed Dresden. Um, and London that night, the 29th of December, came within degrees of being a firestorm that would have consumed the entire city and killed millions of people. Um, and it was saved, and I, my first thought was, oh my God, it all burned down, and then my second thought was, there is no possible way the fire watch could have saved this building. It's just impossible. And um, I still think it's impossible, even though I immediately said to my husband and our friends, go away, go away, go have tea. I need to take notes. Come back in three or four hours. And um, knew what I wanted to do about St. Paul's and knew what I wanted to do pretty much with the rest of my life. And knew how to do it because I had read when I was 13, had been introduced to science fiction, and had since that time read about a thousand time travel novels. And so I wanted to take a time traveler back to, the, to serve on the St. Paul's Firewatch, which I did in a story called Firewatch. And now, and I've written about the Blitz several times since then, but 
for the last six years, I have been working on a three-volume novel called uh, All Clear, which is about my Oxford historians and St. Paul's, um, the Blitz, the evacuated kids, Dunkirk, Bletchley Park, and Ultra, the um, uh, intelligence war against Hitler before D-Day, the V-1s and the V-2s, all of the all of the civilian aspects of the war that I discovered by doing research after I fell in love with it, after I went to St. Paul's, after I read H.V. Morton, after I read uh, had uh, an episode of Sparrows read to me. And so I totally owe my life, my career, and everything I love to books. Um, books do change lives. They do transform people, and they, they're importance and libraries importance particularly cannot be underestimated. I say this every time I'm in a library. There is a lot of talk nowadays, well, you know, the kids have scholastic books and there's the internet and then they can all buy books and look at Barnes and Noble and <sighs> books were the library was the only source of books for me growing up. Without the public library, I would not be standing here right now. And there are kids out there right now for whom the library is the only source of the books, the internet, all the good things out there in life waiting for them. So support your public library. Stand behind them. They're the most important. I don't think there's anything, if you, if you, um, you know, are trying to figure out what the most important government program there is, is this is it. The public library is the most important thing in our country right now and always. And Carnegie, who was an old creep, there's just no two ways about it. But he was smart, and his father had told him that the man who dies rich is a total failure. And so as he got older, he decided to mend his evil ways and sort of, <laughs> well, sort of, at least he did something, and to give money to public libraries. And I've always loved him because he wasn't only, wasn't only just trying to do a good thing, but he was also um, smart about it. He knew that you couldn't trust people as far as you could throw them because you couldn't trust him as far as you could throw him. So he did not donate he, to become a Carnegie library. I don't know if this, was this one ever a Carnegie? I, no. Um, to become a Carnegie, you had to, the, he would provide the money for the building. You had to sign a contract saying that it would always be a library, which is why there are still so many Carnegie libraries around, that you couldn't turn it into extra office space for the mayor or the police department or something, and that you had to provide the books and the staff for a period of, I think it was 10 years or something. Because he knew, and so in the music man, you know, where they, he left River City, the library building, but he left all the books to her. That's, that's Carnegie. <laughs> that's what he did. And as a result, instead of having these libraries, which existed for maybe three or four years in the small town, and then the, the, you know, the mayor got to looking at that office space and thinking, wow, I could really use that, or the people decided to not cough up the next bond issue or whatever, the Carnegie libraries all survived, most of them to the present day. And the others that haven't survived, have it's because they have been replaced by newer, bigger, and better libraries all over the country. So, so um, I've always admired him for that and got to know him through reading about him in books. So um, I think the reason that uh, books transform lives is because they are full of ideas and they always tell you the truth. 
They talk to you about love and beauty and wickedness, greatness, and death, especially about death. Uh, my mother died very abruptly when I was 12 years old, and I discovered that no one will tell you the truth about death. People dance around it. They don't talk about it. And they make up pretty stories. They say things like, the good die young, which is not reassuring to a 12-year-old. Um, <laughs> They tell you God has a plan, which as a 12-year-old, you keep thinking, well, it's a really stupid, rotten plan. Um, they, they kind of work in platitudes and things that make them feel, feel good. Luckily, when my mom died, I had been a steady reader for many years. And uh, at that particular point in my life, before I discovered science fiction, a year before I discovered science fiction, I was reading my way alphabetically through the library, which Francie does in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, which I read about in a book, see. And I have since met, have any of you ever done that? I have, I have met a number of people who have tried to do it. Now, I only made it as far as the Ds, but I still got to an awful lot of books. And then I discovered science fiction, and that was the end of that. So, but, um, but I had read uh, Peter, what's his name? A Fine and Private Place. Pete, thank you. Peter Beagle's Fine and Private Place. I had read Peter DeVries's Blood of the Lamb. I had read uh, James Agee's A Death in the Family. All of those books told me the truth that I could not get anybody else to tell me. And I have been intensely grateful to books ever since and always turn to them, particularly to poetry when I am in serious trouble um, because I know that it's the one place I can find the truth. I'm sure you have your favorite things that you've learned from books um, and your favorite quotations and your favorite, favorite uh, truths. Um, I could give you about 200 H.L. Mencken ones, but you should be reading H.L. Mencken yourself. And I'm assuming you have an excellent H.L. Mencken collection here. Is that true? Good. Excellent. Especially that I never can pronounce, is it Crestomathy, Crestomathy, Crestomathy? The, it, the Crestomathy is, a, is just a little collection of uh, odds and ends that he wrote, essays and pieces for the paper and all kinds of things. And it's really great because he will be totally lacerating something, and you have no idea what he's talking about because it's something that was going on in the 20s, you know, that no longer exists, and you have no idea what it is except that you know it's stupid because he says it is. And, and he, he's such a pleasure to read. I mean, he's just a delight to read. I, not too long ago, wrote a story called um, um, Inside Job, in which a, ch a Chandler, I used to say a fake Chandler, and then somebody said, you know, they're all fake. I'm like, oh, right, that's right, that's true. If, but a fake Chandler uh, uh, accidentally begins channeling H.L. Mencken, which I thought would be funny, because he doesn't believe in that sort of thing, you know. Um, and, and, but mostly the reason I wrote that story because, was because I had been saying to myself twice a day for years, where is he when we need him? So I thought I would bring him back and see what happened. Um, only good things, only good things. If he could be back at the Baltimore Sun right now, it would be a wonderful, wonderful blessing for all of us. He would lacerate everything stupid. Can you imagine what he would have to say about things going on in Washington today? <laughs> it's just, oh, Oh, no. No. Well, he might get laid off. That's true. That's happening all over. But I, I have faith that if, he, if we can just get him to come back, we can have good things happen. 
Instead, I guess we'll just have to do his job for him since he's not here. Um, anyway, I'm going to read you a couple of my favorite quotations. One is Mark Twain, my hero. The human race has only one really effective weapon, and that is laughter. Um, Thornton Wilder from The Matchmaker, you always think that when you get rich, you'll be a different kind of rich person. And then when you get rich, you discover there's only one kind, and you're it. <laughs> and also Thornton Wilder. He is, how many of you have read Thornton Wilder? Oh, go home and read Thornton Wilder immediately. Bridge of San Luis Rey, absolute best. The Matchmaker is wonderful. The Skin of Our Teeth is fabulous. My personal favorite is The Eighth Day, a Thornton Wilder novel nobody's ever read. But I think it's his absolute best. It's about a murder uh, in a coal town in the 1800s. It's just a brilliant, brilliant book. And he's one of those people where you pick him up and part of you is wanting to hurry through because the plot is so interesting and the rest of you is thinking, I should really be taking my time here because every word is golden. You know, um, our town, he's just a wonderful, everything he ever wrote is, is wonderful. And here is my favorite quote from A Bridge of, San, of San Luis Rey. Even memory is not necessary for love. There is a land of the living and a land of the dead. And the bridge is love, the only survival, the only meaning. This is why I was so glad I had found books when my mom died. As Annie Dillard says about the world of books, there is a life worth living where history is still taking place. There are ideas worth dying for and circumstances where courage is still prized. This life could be found and joined like the resistance. Perhaps the most important truth books tell us is that we do not live our lives in isolation, that there are others out there like us, that we are part of something larger than ourselves. As Roald Dahl's Miranda says, Matilda read all kinds of books and was nurtured by the voices of all those authors who had sent their books out into the world like ships onto the sea. These books gave Matilda a hopeful and comforting message. You are not alone. I think that books are the most wonderful thing in the world. They transcend time, they transcend space, they transcend language and gender and color and culture and dictatorships. Hitler was absolutely right to try and burn all the books. He knew how dangerous they really were. And if you want to do what Hitler was doing, it was necessary to burn every single one. But unfortunately for him, and fortunately for us, that is an impossible task. Books survive because he couldn't burn them all. They survive darkness at noon, the dark night of the soul. They even survive death and reach out to speak personally to us from beyond the grave. They speak to us from places that no longer exist and places that never, ever existed. They are humankind's finest achievement. I'd like to close with the words of Clarence Day, Jr. The world of books is the most remarkable creation of man. Nothing else that he builds ever lasts. Monuments fall, nations perish, civilizations grow old and die out, and after an era of darkness, new races build others. But in the world of books are volumes that have seen this happen again and again, and yet live on, still young, still as fresh as the day they were written, 
still telling men's hearts of the hearts of men centuries dead. I consider it such a privilege to be even a part, a tiny part, of the world of books, as all writers and all readers are. And I encourage you to come join the resistance. Thank you. Okay, I want to put in a plug for Balticon 42 this weekend, which is, where is it? Where is it? Hunt Valley Inn. Hunt Valley Inn. And Peter Beagle will be speaking tomorrow at 10.30. All right. He's already mentioned Peter Beagle. And Don't tell him I forgot his name for a moment. Yes, yes. James Patrick Kelly will be there. Walter John Williams, I don't know the other guests, but lots of great writers and lots of great panels and you can hear people read their new work you can hear you can hear people discussing all kinds of topics it's lots of fun great stuff so hunt valley in yes and it's friday through monday throughout friday through monday so and if you want to take a look at the program book it is already posted on the web www.balticon.org okay yeah great and come on and i know that because last night i looked up the the hotel because i I tend, I'm always picked up at the airport, so I always assume that someone will pick me up at the airport. And one time I got to a convention, no one was there. And I realized I had no idea where the convention was and thought, I guess I'm going to have to go to the phone book and start calling hotels and say, hi, we're having a science fiction convention this weekend. So luckily the person showed up. They were just late. But, but I haven't, I've always since that time looked up the hotel myself. So. <laughs> So I can vouch for the fact that the very nice website is up there. So, okay, questions? Yes? Having heard you speak, I can understand why the humor and, and to say nothing of the dog is organic. Can you, can you give me a, you know, what, what started you in that direction? You know, I, I think comedy is something where, for me, that's just the way I see the world. I think the world is really hilarious, and um, it's hard for me to not see it in those ways, it's hard for me to like calm down and be really tragic. And I don't have an operatic view of life. I'm always tremendously annoyed by operatic stories. I hated Titanic with a passion you just cannot even imagine. All this stupid, I'm sorry. Um, since I myself am a big Titanic fan. But since irony is like, I love irony and I, I think I see the world in an ironic fashion. So I guess that's that's uh, one of the things I was reading yesterday that they asked Chelsea Clinton. They, they, were, they looked up Chelsea Clinton's Facebook page, and she said, as so many other young people of my age, I am trying to get my mother elected president. <laughs> and I thought, no, no, that's wrong. That's so wrong. That's not what you mean, sweetie. You, and it was just, it struck me as very, very funny because she, I, I, and I tried to like think how to rephrase that so it actually makes sense. But, but um, and, and then uh, the other day when I was flying, I was in the airport and this kid had a robot car, you know, the remote control cars. Oh my God. And he had it at the baggage claim where he was running it all around. And everyone else was looking extremely annoyed, and I just thought this was the funniest thing I'd ever seen, and I was busily trying to write it down so that I could use it in a story someday, watching people's reactions and stuff. So I think there's a, it's just a certain bent. I do think, I do agree very much with Mark Twain that laughter is our only weapon, and that we laugh because otherwise we'd just be crying all the time, you know, and... uh, 
and that we have to, and that one of the most powerful weapons we have, especially against, you know, um, against government is, is laughter, to just laugh them out of existence and, and to ridicule them, which I think John Stewart is, will go down in history as one of our great American heroes. And I say that in all seriousness. Well, kind of in all seriousness. So, uh, but yes, I, I just, I love comedy, and that's my favorite thing to write. Romantic comedy is actually my favorite thing to write. I, I'm a huge fan of all the 1930s screwball comedies with, with Irene Dunn and, and Cary Grant, and, um, and Cary Grant, <laughs> and, uh, um, and Gene Arthur, and Jimmy Stewart, and all those wonderful uh, comedies. Capra sometimes isn't ironic enough for me, but I can fix him, so... Uh, and I, I just I think we need I, I think we need humor too in in the world. I I, I notice that people are um, uh, we're 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 very afraid right now. We're very nervous about things, and we're not not in a, a humorous mode. I um I was originally before I started this book on World War II. I was working on a book about Roswell and alien abduction, a comic novel, of course, and. Um, and it was going to be full of social commentary. I was. This is going to be my road picture book, where, uh, you know, Bing and and Bob and and Dorothy and Lauren, everything, uh, and uh, and I was and I was going to fill it with social commentary because I was so annoyed with Americans as I'm always annoyed with my fellow countrymen, and. And then uh, 9/11 happened, and and I just had to abandon the book for the time being because comedy only works, and social commentary especially only works when people are fat and sassy and complacent and need a little shaken up, you know. They, it doesn't work when they're scared and nervous and all you can feel for them is compassion. So um, I started work on, um, on this book, All Clear, which is almost done, within weeks of being done, finally. And, um, and then uh, thought I would wait until I was really annoyed with my fellow countrymen again. And guess what? <laughs> I am. <laughs> so we're back to normal. And so, and I'm writing down 12 stupid things a day that I can use in the book. So, so uh, um, but I do, that's what I enjoy writing most of all is the comedy. So I have to say, so my favorite is probably to say nothing of the dog rather than, than Doomsday Book. But I know people like Doomsday Book. So, Yes. 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 Uh, you betcha. I wanted to ask you, how did you research that? Well, yeah. Yeah. It, it, that was so interesting because I took that Chaucer class also. <laughs> and when we had to memorize, when that aprila with the shore so to the drought marcheth pierced to the road. And the whole time I kept going, how do they know how it was pronounced? How do they know that? How do they know that? We went to England. The first day we were in England, we went to the Tower of London, and we got off the bus. At The bus driver told us where to get off. But we couldn't see anything. I mean, we couldn't see the river. We couldn't see the tower. We couldn't see anything. We were surrounded by buildings. So we had no idea which way to go, and there was no sign saying, to the Tower of London. So I saw a policeman. I said, oh, there's a Bobby. I'll go ask him. And I went and asked him, and he told me. And I came back, and they said, what did he say? And I said, I have no idea. <laughs> not one word, not a single word had gotten through to me. It was the oddest experience of my life. And I thought, this is my mother tongue. How can we possibly imagine 
that we would go back in time to another age and be able to just pick it up like that. And, and science fiction is full of these awful books in which you go and you have a little black box attached to your waist or something, and it's a magic translator, which, I mean, do you really understand your mother-in-law? No, right? So how could we have a magic translator for people who lived centuries ago? And so I have, I've dealt with that in Firewatch. I think my hero goes back to St. Paul's, and he walks in the door, and the guy starts talking gibberish at him, and it's all World War II slang that he just doesn't know, you know, and because uh, he hasn't been properly prepped for his assignment. And so um, I figured, you know, we can't go even 40 years in the past. I can't even go to England and understand what's being said to me, so how on earth would we understand that? So, so I got interested in that. Um, I was helped out a great deal by the fact that there are a number of wonderful books in the library which have the Middle English, Chaucer among them, in one column, and the um, and the modern English in a second column, and you can find what you want to say, and then and then uh, translate it that way. So it is real Middle English. Although my problem when I learned French was I never could figure out where the words ended and started, you know, and I would confuse like a word and a half with being a word or two words or something, and so. I have that a lot of that in there too. I just took all my own problems and with the language and tried to to put them in there. But but that was one of the things I was most positive of is that we could not possibly walk in and get away with it. And I think too, you know, actually, although I write about people going back in time all the time and incognito time travelers, I don't really believe it for a second. I think we would have made 152 errors in the first three minutes and and just not, you know, everything from not being able to figure out how the door works to, um, you know, to we just look wrong. We're all way too tall. Our feet are way too big. I think we would be considered giants in most eras up to this this century. Because um, you've all you've all been to the museum and seen the the you know the 1890s shoes and they're all like a size three or something, and if you've ever gone to Grauman's Chinese, what a humiliating experience! The only footprints that I could stand in were Donald Duck's. <laughs> and I was so mortified. Douglas Fairbanks had littler feet than me. I was just like, oh, that's so annoying. And John Wayne, oh no. So anyway, we would we our teeth are too good. We're too healthy. We all look way too good. Our hair is too thick. We're healthy. We're way too healthy for most of history. And so, um, and if you would go to 1944 England, where I have one of my heroines going, uh, you would. She really would have stood out tremendously because nobody had had any fruits or vegetables for the last four years, and there was a bad case of malnutrition in the entire country of England over because of the rationing and the shortage, the food shortages. And so everybody looked very pasty and pale. And um, the, the Americans, one of the reasons the American GIs made out like bandits over there, aside from the fact that they had chocolate and chewing gum and nylons, which English girls hadn't seen for years, and they'd been uh, putting makeup on their legs and drawing a seam up the back of their legs with eyeliner. Um, but... Uh, uh, they made out like bandits partly because they were just all so handsome because they were, you know, well-fed and healthy and tan and looked really good, unlike everybody in England. So so um, as recently as uh, 50 years ago, we would have had a hard time going back to, to an earlier time. So, so even though I don't believe in it, I still send my people there all the time, so as much as I possibly can. So, yeah, other questions? Oh, Mark. 
Well, I write every day. All the time. Uh, I write this. I'm. I've been basically pulling an all-nighter since December on this book, which means, excuse me, I have not been to church since Christmas, and I have been working. Or I, I show up at Starbucks almost before the kids are there to open for me, and uh, uh, I work. Uh, usually, I do a morning session, then I go home and walk the dog and do the housework, and then, and then I come back and have an afternoon session too. I don't usually work quite such long hours but I'm trying hard to finish this big book so um, and I work I have to have an iced grande latte and the New York Times which I read cover to cover and then I work the crossword on Mondays Wednesdays and Fridays and after that it's too hard for me I can't do Thursday well, I did Thursday today on the plane but only because I had hours to devote to it so ordinarily I can't do Thursday on so, but and and rituals. When you talk to writers, they almost always have a really elaborate ritual. Of they have to have a special kind of pen or a special kind of paper or a special time and location or a special drink. Or we have in science fiction now. We've all vastly reformed. When uh, when I got into science fiction, it was still they were still suffering heavily from the influence of Hemingway, you know, and, and Fitzgerald, and and saw alcohol as a really good way to enhance the creative process, which it is not. As Fitzgerald said, uh, even to write a Saturday Evening Post story, you have to be stone cold sober, So, which is why he stopped writing after a while. But, um, but, uh, uh, but writers do really need that. Uh, at one point, uh, Samuel R. Delaney called his agent in an absolute hysterics because uh, the company that produced the, the yellow legal pads that he wrote his books on had just gone out of business. And his agent, who knew his business well and valued Chip Delaney's work, um, promptly called all the suppliers in New York City and bought up all the cases of yellow legal pads remaining so as not to interrupt his, his career, understanding how important that was. I had a major crisis not too long ago when um, Mead, which made the, the big chief tablets, you know, those... Oh, Wonderful. They're legal size, but they're pulp paper and real wide lines, and your pen just sinks into it like butter. It's wonderful. Um, they went out of business, and but I found a supplier online, <laughs> so I'm okay for a while. So, and then I'm going to try to wean myself to something else. But right, I've been using a lot of Pirates of the Caribbean spiral notebooks lately. So, yes. So, so you're writing. I write, yes, I write longhand. I have a secretary who types my stuff in um, onto the computer. I, I can type. I can use a computer. But I just like writing the first draft longhand and working that way. Lots of writers, lots of science fiction writers were supposed to be the cutting edge of the future, you know. But most of us write longhand. Well, not most of us. I would say about half of us write longhand. I don't know. There's something about that brain-hand connection that's really important for the creative process for me. So... Plus, I can go any place I want and do anything I want and don't have to worry about batteries and stuff. But um, nowadays, of course, all, at Starbucks, all, everyone else has a laptop, and that seems to work really well, too. So, so, all right. Any last questions? This has been a real pleasure to be able to come here, and I'm happy if you have books that you want me to sign. I'm happy to do that. And uh, I encourage all of you to read. And to, to read, if you haven't tried science fiction, uh, to try it. I don't know, a lot of people will say, they come up to me and say, I just hate science fiction. I'm like, how many you hate science fiction? That's like hating books. I mean, it's ridiculous. Uh, and there are so many different kinds of science fiction. I'm sure you can find something that you really like. And, 
um, there are all sorts of exciting things going on in it right now. So, and in the past, that where science fiction is now old enough to have a past, which is kind of cool. And I highly recommend a lot of the classics and a lot of what's being written today. So, all right, thank you so much for letting me come. <laughs> Are these, is this a pen that will work? I brought you a Sharpie. Oh, good. I, well, I don't like Sharpies. You don't like Sharpies? Oh, no. Will that one work? Yeah.